of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Thank you. Good morning. Hey, I have to confess that I uh, have been talking about you behind your back. Yeah, it's true. Um, I think that you guys are the most fantastic, incredible church family in the world. Um, I talk with pastors quite a bit in different places, and they talk about uh, how difficult it is and not wanting uh, to do this role. And uh, they talk about things, I think it's kind of a funny term called sheep bite, right? Where it's like, oh man, the sheep are biting. And, and the, the truth is, is that I just am so grateful for our church family. Like, you know, the, the uh, Israelites, as they were leaving Egypt, they ended up complaining and it did not go well for them. They ended up doing laps in the desert because uh, they would not trust God and they didn't make it into the promised land. And you are not a grumbling and complaining group of people. Instead, you want what God wants and you want to see uh, his kingdom come in our day. And, and I believe that we're going to be a promised land people, not a wilderness people. And uh, thank you. And so just, I just want you to know that I'm really, really grateful for you. Um, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about this morning. Um, that was for free. Um, but just pat yourself on the back. Maybe your neighbor say, hey, we're doing all right. Um, uh, you know, I think one of the keys to, to um, us not being a grumbling, complaining, divisive, all of those things kind of bunch uh, is that we're not interested in playing church around here but that we actually want to partner with God and see uh, the world changed. And I think as long as we keep our eyes on Jesus and what he's up to, then I think we're going to experience the life that he has for us. So anyways, we're starting a new series this morning. It's called Better, um, and it's based on uh, Jesus' promise in John chapter 16. And he said this. He was getting his disciples ready for him to go to the cross, and not that much later that he would um, eventually ascend into heaven um, and leave them behind. And he, he said something really interesting to them. You know, they, um, if, anybody been watching The Chosen? You've seen a little bit of that? It's really, really good. I can't help but cry when I watch it. And so, so you've got these guys that are hanging out with Jesus and they're seeing him move in power. But not only that, he's their best friend. And he's like, they're, they're thinking, hey, we're gonna follow this guy uh, in the flesh into the glory days of seeing the kingdom come. And Jesus begins to tell them a different story. He begins to tell them about how he's going to be crucified and that he'll raise from the dead and that he'll ascend into heaven. And they're thinking, no, we've, we're supposed to have you with us like the whole time. We're going to see this geopolitical kingdom restored and it's going to be fantastic. And he gives them this promise and it's uh, as true for you and I as it was for them in that day nearly 2,000 years ago. He said to them, it's better for you that I go because unless I go, I cannot send the helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit to be with you. And what Jesus is saying is that better than me in the flesh with you is me in the spirit with you and in you. And so often we think, oh, if I could just have been in Jesus's day, or we even rewind a little further and think, oh, you know, if I could have been in David's day or Moses's day or Abraham's day, then how incredible that would have been. But what Jesus is saying to us is it's actually better that we live in this day 
than even if we walked around with him in the flesh. That's good news. So this morning we're starting a series talking about the work and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We've actually, in our seven and a half years, we've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit, um, but we've never had a a sermon series teaching on the Holy Spirit. So this morning I'm going to teach a little bit, and I'm going to invite you this whole time, we're going to be inviting you to take steps in your relationship with the Spirit of God, that you would know what it looks like to walk with God. You know you were created to walk with God? Tell your neighbor, you were created to walk with God. It's part of your divine design. It's what God intended from the very beginning. And what we see is that when Adam and Eve chose to go their own way, that they chose actually to step out of relationship with God. Before God said, hey, you're not going to make it in the garden, they said, hey, we're not going to make it in relationship with God. And the reality is, is that our sin, our decision to go our own way, it does not make God, God does not turn us into his enemies, but instead it makes us, makes him as if he's our enemy in our own heads. You see, God actually wants relationship with you. He is, he went to the cross to be in relationship with you. And he's not trying to leave you. But so often, what happens in our head alienates us from God. So I want to talk about a few mindsets regarding the Holy Spirit, some of our experiences. Um, and so we'll, we'll jump in uh, to Scripture in just a minute. Um, so I grew up in a, what people would call like a spirit-filled or a charismatic family. And it goes back to my, my grandfather. My grandfather was a, a pastor uh, in a church, rural church just outside of Houston in the 60s. And he had gone through seminary and been trained and was given a a church to lead, a big denominational church to lead. And and so he started hanging out with these men. He's in his mid-20s, started hanging out with these men. They were called the Full Gospel Businessmen's Association. Some of you older folks have have heard of that, that crew. And uh, they started talking to him about the work of the Holy Spirit. And here's what he realized. He realized that he actually, as a pastor, had not given his life to Jesus. And so he gave his life to Jesus. And then he invited the Holy Spirit just to, to live in him, to dwell in him. And something shifted radically in his life. He realized, hey, I'm supposed to actually have a relationship with God. I'm supposed to, to walk with God. I'm supposed to hear God. So he, he begins to, this is a crazy idea. He begins to start praying before he decides what he's going to preach. Isn't that crazy? So 1965, he's praying and God says, you need to preach against racism. 1965, farming community, Texas. Not a popular topic, right? So he preaches against racism, and you can imagine it it didn't go very well. So his deacons come to him and say, hey, don't do that again. So the next morning he's talking with, with God. This is now Monday morning after the Sunday that he's preached against racism. And he asked God, hey, what are we preaching on this week? And God said, well, I don't think they got the message. So let's go after racism again. And my grandfather said, I, I don't 
think you were there because it did not go very well. They asked me not to do that again. So he actually disobeys uh, and doesn't preach on racism and has the same conversation the following Monday. And he's like, yes, sir, we'll, we'll do it. So he, he preaches on racism. And, and that night, the church burned to the ground. And there was a cross burning in their front yard. My dad was about five years old. And so I grew up in a family that had a high value for the Holy Spirit. And not everybody has that. A lot of times we, even if you grew up in a Christian family, the, the Holy Trinity for, for many of us has been the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. Now I have a high value for, for Scripture, for the Bible, because it points us to the author. The point of the Bible is not that you would have a relationship with the Bible, but that you would have a relationship with the author. Amen. Right? And so for me, growing up, it would have actually been common. Oh, man, I just got a rabbit. I got a chase. So here, here, here's the reality. If you look throughout history, many of the great justice movements and many of the great inventions and breakthroughs that we've experienced and that we benefit from, like the light bulb, came as a work of the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Talk about John Wesley here in a minute, but John Wesley, as he was preaching and seeing God move in the Great Awakening, a couple of things birthed out of a result of that. One thing that birthed out of a result of the Great Awakening was the abolitionist movement. Another thing that birthed out of the Great Awakening was our very nation. You start watching what God was doing in imperfect people like a George Washington and you realize that the Holy Spirit was anointing his leadership. You, you watch people even like Joan of Arc and you realize God was doing something in her. You pay attention to what happened in Isaac Newton's life in about 18 months and you realize he, he had retreated and gotten alone with God and almost all of the scientific discovery that has burst what we see in science and even in technology in our day came out of him getting alone with God. You watch Tesla and the inventions that he got as an inspiration to the Holy Spirit. He would spend time with God and his mind would be flooded with inventions that he had to keep a notepad with him because he would forget what God would show him and he'd end up moving on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. You see, so often we look at history through critical lenses as we see imperfect people making bad decisions, but we forget to see what God was doing and how he was moving humanity forward even in really dark and difficult times. So all that's for free, but I just want to say to you that we're riding on the, the improvement and the progress that the Holy Spirit has inspired in so many ways. You look at even the, the birth of what God did in the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King Jr. and, and so many of, of those people, and you realize God was inspiring something by his spirit. You were created to walk with God. So anyway, so I grew up in in this family that had a high value for the spirit of God. It would not be uncommon, especially if we got like the whole family together for dinner, that uh, my grandfather uh, would, would start 
singing like these, these hymns and psalms, and then at the dinner table, that would break out into tongues, and, and it would just be like this crazy, like, charismatic dinner service, right? And, and so I, I grew up where we expected God to move. The, the first thing we did when somebody was sick in our family is we didn't think about ibuprofen or calling the doctor. The first thing we did is prayed. We didn't have a problem with ibuprofen or the doctor. God, God works through those things. But, in, but we had a high value for expecting God to move. And so that became the, the norm of my life from a young age. And then I get into my teenage years and I start making some, some poor decisions. I've given my life to Jesus, but I start making some bad decisions. And as a result of that, I started to feel like I was an enemy of God's. And it wasn't that I felt like he was angry, but, but I, it, it's impossible to live in sensuality and walk in sensitivity to the Spirit of God. And so the decisions I was making made me think, hey, I still want to follow Jesus, but I stopped listening to his voice. I think so often what happens in our lives is that as we make decisions not to walk with God and not to hear his voice, what we find is ourselves slowly separating from his life. And so I entered into to church leadership and to ministry. Uh, at 19, I, I moved overseas to help plant a church, and, and I was in this really self-reliant Christianity. And, it, and I'm not sure about the people around me, but I was more interested in seeing what I could do than waiting to see what God could do. In fact, when we started Sozo, one of the things I felt like God spoke to me is, We've seen what you can do, now watch what I can do. And, and I, I feel like God is looking for people that will be sensitive to his voice and listen to him. And that it doesn't take special people in order to do that, but it's just that's God's desire that we would walk with him. So what, what you'll find, one of the things that I've, that I've seen is that Different movements and different people have different mindsets regarding the work of the Holy Spirit. And so often, the folks that see God move in one season, they begin to believe that they've got the secret sauce to seeing God move, and they're the very ones that resist what he's about to do in the next season. And so I want to talk you through five mindsets with the Holy Spirit and give you uh, an invitation for, for more, but I want to hopefully speak to us all because I think we can all find ourselves uh, in, this, in one of these places, but in particular, the, I want to talk to the folks that have been a bit resistant to the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and maybe you've gotten stuck in your head. One of the first beliefs we see regarding the Holy Spirit is called cessationism. Say cessationism. And the idea of cessationism is that the, the, it's the belief that the gifts of the Spirit stopped with the apostles. And people get there in one of two ways. They, they get there, one, by interpreting Scripture in such a way that they think, oh, the point of the work of the Spirit in our life is simply 
so that, or in the early church, was simply so that they could get scripture. And so what they do is then they begin to replace the spirit for what he's said. And so they think, oh, we don't actually need the Holy Spirit anymore because we've got the Holy Bible. And those two are actually created to work together, not separate from each other. So uh, another um, way that people get there is just by experience. And oftentimes what we find is that the people that are arguing, hey, they're just living an experiential Christianity are actually living in their lack of belief based on their lack of experience. But when, when we read scripture, what we find is an invitation to experience God. You know, one of the first titles given to the book of Acts was the gospel of the Holy Spirit. And what Luke was saying is, hey, this is how the Holy Spirit moves today in our lives. This is what normal looks like. The truth is there's not a strong biblical argument or historical evidence for the supernatural power of the Spirit being limited to a season. In fact, history tells us a very different story. St. Augustine, many of you have heard of him, lived in North Africa, and uh, he was in the, the fourth and fifth centuries, and he saw incredible miracles documented in his day. One that I find kind of funny, I think it's the junior higher in me, is that he saw documented over 300 cases of hemorrhoids healed. I don't know if they were laying on hands or probably just a, a spoken word. Um, right around the, the same time, St. Patrick was doing his work in Ireland and he saw documented over 30 people raised from the dead. And what we find is that all throughout church history, there is a flame of the Spirit at work. Sometimes it's a small flame and sometimes it's a bonfire. But what we find is that God has always been at work throughout church history. And so often, we step into what is new for us and we begin to think that it's new for everybody. We start to think, hey, I, I've, I've gotten it. And what we find in scripture though is that God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And so when we think, oh, we finally are the ones that got it all figured out, we're probably headed towards losing the light of our flame. And so we see this idea of cessationism, it stopped with the apostles or in the early church, but what we see is all throughout history, back to John Wesley. John Wesley, when he would preach, they would gather people in fields, and sometimes those fields would have trees in them. And so because it was lots of people with no amplification, people would want to see what was going on, so they'd begin to climb up trees to see. And, and what John's team would do is they would go and take people out of the trees. And here's why. When Wesley would preach, the Spirit of God would come in such a way that most people wouldn't stay standing on their feet, and they didn't want people to fall out of the trees in order to get, and, and get hurt. 
And so I just, I want you to get this picture that the Holy Spirit has not stopped working throughout all human history. That it's his desire to move on our day, and it's his desire that it would be normal. Another belief that we come across is the idea of exclusivism. Say exclusivism. That's the belief that the gifts and power of the Spirit are only reserved for exceptional people or circumstances. Now, chances are most of you in the room don't wrestle with cessationism. But a lot of us would wrestle with exclusivism. We begin to think, oh, it's just those special people. And I need to find the guy with the special anointing, or I need to find, uh, or God, you know, I, we've got medical doctors in our day, so we don't need the miraculous. Now, I am grateful for medical doctors, but we still live in a day where God is working miracles. How many of you have, in, in, your, in your own physical body, experienced miraculous healing? Keep your hands up. Look around the room. Phenomenal. Kenny is like a walking invitation for a miracle. Diane, and she's like, oh, Kenny just fell off the roof. All right, he's healed now. He's fine. (laughs) And so what, what we see even in church history, God moves. And yet what we see in Scripture is very different than that. We see that God promised to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2, and we see in Luke 11 that he gives his spirit to all that would ask. If you read Mark 16, what you find is that it says, these are the signs to those who believe. It's God's desire that everybody would get to experience him. And that, the supernatural work, the work of God in our lives and through our lives, would actually be what normal is for us. And so often what we've done is we have settled for average becoming our normal. We've settled for, oh, well, this is all we're seeing, so this must be what we're supposed to live in. But the invitation of Scripture is that we would trust God, that we'd put our faith in him and that we would see him move. And that right isn't reserved for just a few. It's not just some holy people, and all the rest of us are just normal. In fact, when you, when you read Paul's letters, he never writes to the sinners in Corinth, or the sinners in Ephesus, or the sinners in Philippi. Did you notice that? Now, especially in Corinth, those guys, they didn't have it all together. That was a messed up church. I think it was so bad that we actually lost the first letter that he ever wrote to them. Because there was actually, we know there were three letters written to the church in Corinth. The the second letter to the church in Corinth is what we call 1 Corinthians, and they are getting a spanking in that book. And so probably the letter before that was even worse. No, he doesn't write to the sinners in any place. He writes to the saints. Why? Because you're a saint. And your sainthood is not something that you needed somebody to prove to you or that you needed miraculous signs. Your sainthood is the result 
of the fact that Jesus went to the cross for you and he's covered all of your sin and you are forgiven and you are holy because of him. In fact, the word for saint is the same word for holy. You're holy. And you're so holy that you can't do anything to mess it up. Isn't that good news? You didn't do anything to make yourself holy and you can't do anything to mess it up. And so, the work of the Spirit does not depend on your behavior. It depends on your belief. And those are two very different things. In fact, we, we live in a day that's full of church scandal, right? And it's like, oh, well, this guy's seen all these miracles and he's having an affair. And people are like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Let me say this, it's not okay, but it was never his behavior that became the permission for the Spirit of God to work through him. It was always his belief. And so God isn't looking for perfect people, he's looking for people who would believe. Now that's not an excuse for poor behavior. It's not okay and it grieves the very heart of God. And it should not be tolerated in the church and leaders are held to a higher standard. I'm not making excuses. I'm just explaining the reason why we see these guys that are doing ridiculously stupid and foolish and damaging things and they still see the miraculous power of God is not because they're perfect and it's not an endorsement of their character and behavior. It's because God works through imperfect people and you and I are included in that. So, so in the early church, this idea of exclusivism began to, to grow. And, and what happened in the third or in the fourth and fifth centuries is that the church began to get married to the state. And that is always a dangerous thing for the church. And what happens is, is that when the church wants power, the church begins to make agreements with the state thinking that the church will now have power in the state, but what happens is the state actually gets power in the church. Now, should we have a voice into the state? Absolutely. But we should never go to the state looking for power. And so what happens is they begin to create different hierarchies, and they say that certain people have anointing to see miracles and certain people don't, that, that the priest and the, the really holy ones, they get to see God move and everybody else doesn't, they don't get to see anything happen basically. And that becomes the belief system that leads to the, the next thing that we run into called monasticism. Say monasticism. monasticism. So by the fourth century, it's becoming illegal if you're not an ordained priest to see the miraculous. In fact, speaking in tongues is forbidden in the church unless you're a priest. And what they would say is this, that if a priest speaks in tongues, it's a sign of sainthood. But if a normal person speaks in tongues, it's the sign of demonic possession. Isn't that ridiculous? And so 
the people that are actually seeing God move and that have a passion to see God move get kicked out of the church. It's what happened to my mom's side of the family. They got disfellowshipped because they started pursuing things of the Spirit. They actually went, this is hilarious. I don't have enough time to share this story, but I'm going to share it anyways. They, they actually went and sat down, the elders went and sat down with my uh, grandparents and my mom and her two sisters and her brother and said, hey, you guys are out. And then they go to my, my aunt, who is the oldest, who's 14 at the time, said, you're old enough to make a decision for yourself. So you can stay in the church, but your family's out. Isn't that crazy? My aunt was like, no way. She was like, we're having so much fun over here seeing God move. There's no way I'm staying bored here. Um, and, And so what happened is the people that were hungry to see God move, they left civilization and they started their own communities in the desert. So we get what's called the Desert Fathers. And we see them in church history. And it's these people that are just dedicated to seeing God move and to knowing him. Here's the problem that arose. Is that they left civilization by necessity. Because of persecution. By the church, by the way. But what happened is that people begin to make their own ideas about their experience. And so they be, the people around them begin to believe that in order to see God move, you have to withdraw from civilization. And that in, in order to see God move, you have to withdraw from the world. And in order to see God move, you've just got to dedicate yourself only to prayer and fasting. Do you see what happens there? See, they left by necessity as a result of persecution. But we, the, the people around them, and we've done this throughout church history, is we've started to make the people that leave by necessity, we, we start making rules about their lifestyle. And so what happens is, is that we begin to think that we can earn the move of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in our lives. I just need to pray harder. I just need to fast more. I just need to do this, and I need to do that, and I need to get away from the world. Now, the, the truth is, is that the Spirit of God was given to us not by anything that we could do. The gifts of the Spirit are gifts. They're not rewards or wages. Are you with me? So it's not something that I earn. It's not something that I get by striving. I get it by receiving in faith. Okay? And so it's not that I have to go away and fast and pray in order to get more. In fact, fasting is great. I have a value system for that. But let your fasting be feasting. And here's what I mean. Let your fasting not be, how do I starve myself to twist God's arm so that he'll do something in me so that I can earn it. But let it be, I'm so in love with him that I'm going to feast on him. And so I'm going to set aside food because I'm just going to indulge myself on who he is, not because I want to get something from him, but because I already have everything in him. And when I begin to live that way, what I find is that I enjoy him and I see him move. 
Not because I earned it, but because I prioritize what is meant to be priority. And so we begin to come up with all these ideas, like maybe, maybe pastors, they, they spend all of their time reading and praying, and so maybe they should see more miracles or more move of the Spirit or be more saintly or whatever than the rest of us. That's ridiculous. I love what Paul says to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 3. He says, who has bewitched you? Did you see the work of the Spirit? By what you've done or by your belief? If you want to see God move, you have to begin to believe like God, not try to behave your way into earning his, his pleasure. And so, it doesn't mean that we don't live set-apart lives, but we begin to recognize that the reason that I see God move is for the sake of the world, not so that I can escape the world. Now, there's a place for celibacy in the church and for a monastic lifestyle. All of those things have value, but we're not trying to twist God's arm in order to see him move. Instead, we're enjoying him, and in enjoying him, it sensitizes our hearts and our spirits to what he's doing, and from that place of sensitivity, we know what he's up to. Like, I could probably tell you what Lauren's thinking, my wife, right now. She's thinking, I wish he wasn't talking about me. <laughs> Why? Because I'm sensitive to her. Because I've been around her and I've enjoyed her and I have curiosity to ask her questions and learn her ways. And so I begin to think the way that she thinks. And it's not something that I earned, it's, it's a relationship that I've built. And so I do this, I did this this morning, talk about knowing what people think. Eliza's really embarrassed now that I'm talking about her. And, but, I, but I asked her, hey, what's God doing in the room right now? And I know that she's sensitive to what God's up to. And so what happens is, is that we begin to ask questions that begins to cultivate an awareness of what God's doing. In fact, most of us, don't realize how spiritually sensitive we are. We walk into a room and we suddenly feel off. And we think, oh, it's that person. And here's what happens. The accuser, who is the enemy, who is the devil, he wants to divide you from people and begin to pick people off, right? So he brings accusation. But what you're actually feeling is what the spiritual atmosphere of the room is. So if you walk into a space and you're totally fine and happy, and all of a sudden you feel depressed or you feel anxious or you feel whatever, it may not be that that's your own anxiety, but it may be that you're sensing what's going on in the room. So when you begin to pay attention, then you ask God what he's up to in the room and you become sensitive to him. In fact, some folks get so focused on the devil that they're only sensitive to the devil. And so they can tell you what, what the enemy's up to in the room, but they couldn't tell you what God's doing. So the truth is the gifts are not rewards. They're given to impact the world, so they work best in the world. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't retreat, get away. Doesn't mean you shouldn't pray and fast, but realize that God wants to work in your life and through your life for the sake of the world. That you've got real solutions to real problems that God wants to 
to work through you. Like Tesla is inventing stuff with the Holy Spirit. Some of you, you just need to expect God to show up at work. And it's not so that somebody will get saved, but it's actually so that you can solve problems that contribute to the progress in society. It's not not that people can get saved, but that's sometimes we get so narrowly focused that we don't get to enjoy and experience all that God wants to do. He's just way better and bigger than that. So the next thing we see is called vilification. Say vilification. We see this in that same time that monasticism develops in the early church. We see the idea that the supernatural is actually a sign of the demonic, not the spirit. In fact, I've run into believers that are so terrified of being demon-possessed that they won't allow themselves to be filled with the Spirit. They're like, oh, that must be, yeah, weird things happen, that must not be God. Read this thing. Weird things happen because of God. And so oftentimes, people begin to put more faith in the devil's ability to deceive us than in God's ability to keep us, than God's ability to empower us. The truth is God gives the Spirit to all who would ask, and pursuing him will not open you up to the enemy. Let me say this to you about pursuing God, that it will not open you up to the enemy. You can pursue power and not pursue God in a way that will open you up to the enemy. But when your pursuit is God, it will always land you into, in deeper intimacy, even if you miss it. In fact, I, I love, we'll teach on this in a few weeks, I love what 1 Corinthians uh, 1, or, or sorry, uh, 1231 says. It says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Some of you have heard, oh, you don't want to go after spiritual gifts, just go after God. No, you need the tools for the job that you've been assigned to. You need to go after spiritual gifts, but let your pursuit of spiritual gifts be a way of pursuing dimensions of intimacy with God that you've never experienced before. Like one of the reasons why I love preaching and I love praying for people and I love ministering is because in those things, I experience God in ways that I don't by myself. So it's actually like, I love you, bless you, but I'm actually just enjoying going to work with my dad. Like one of the things I love about preaching is that God begins to speak to me thoughts that I've never thought before. You're like, well, your preaching is not that good. Well, I'm not blaming him for all of it. But it's actually a way to enjoy him. I love what, go with me to Luke chapter 9. Or sorry, chapter 11, verse 9. It says, Jesus is teaching them on prayer. And he says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. That, that word, or seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. It actually says ask and keep asking. Seek and keep, keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. There's something about persistence that God enjoys. It's like, I value you enough. Like he told, the, he told the early church, before they were the early church, when they were just the disciples, wait until I come. 
And there's something about that that God enjoys. That word knock, by the way, is a word that means basically knock the door down with the, with the stick. It's knock and keep knocking. It's don't give up. And the reason why we ask and keep asking, we seek and keep seeking and knock and keep knocking is not because we think that God is holding out on us, but because he's that good that I'm not going to give up. He said, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened to them. Which of you, of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Here's the idea. If you ask for a fish, but you're given a snake, you're, given, you're asking for something good, and you're giving something that will do damage to you, okay? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, ouch, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? See, it's actually God's pleasure to give you his spirit. And oftentimes, the, the biggest problem, the two things we run into in living under the influence, the power of the Holy Spirit, one is our thoughts. Maybe you've run down one of these roads before and you've just been like, oh, it's just for certain people. That's not for me. Or, oh, no, God doesn't do that anymore. Here's one I hear a lot. Oh, God, he just does that overseas. Are you kidding me? Or, you know, all, all, all of those excuses, right? The ideas of cessationism or exclusivism or monasticism or even vilification. Oh, it's, it's dangerous to go after those things. So that's, that's one of the reasons that we don't. And we, what happens is, is that we believe a lie and then we make an agreement with the lie. And then that agreement actually prohibits us from moving forward. It's like we lock the door to God. Easiest way to break those agreements is just to acknowledge them before God. Oftentimes, and I was, I was actually the last couple of days just processing this, is that I realized I had made some agreements about God working through me based on disappointment. I think sometimes we do that. Where it's like I prayed and nothing happened, and so now... I begin to believe lies based on that experience. The other reality for all of us, the things that will keep us from experiencing the life and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is that we're not willing to surrender. You see, we want the Holy Spirit to come as some sort of validation of our lifestyle or as some sort of cool trick that I can have. Oh, I pray and I see people healed or I get prophetic words for people or whatever else it is. See food multiplied. And, and we, we do it in order to boost our own egos, to build our own brands, to make us feel more spiritual. And the truth is what God's actually after, those things grieve him. What God's actually after is the people that'll live and surrender to him. And so, while our sin grieves the Holy Spirit, our, our acts of commission going in a different direction, our acts of omission are 
disobedience actually quenched the Holy Spirit, actually cut off the supply of the flow of the Spirit through our lives. And so, so often we want to maintain control. And so we don't live in the surrender that allows the Spirit to come. And what God's looking for is the people that will trust him so that they'll lay the whole, their whole lives down before him. And so this morning, maybe you're wrestling with that. And I just would invite you just to go to God and say, hey, God, this is where I've been wrestling. I haven't really surrendered. We, make this, we have this idea that I can let Jesus be my Savior, but I won't let him be Lord. I want to maintain control. And so you just come before him and say, hey, this is where I've been living. Or, or maybe you've been making agreements out of your experience. And the truth is that God wants to pour himself out on you. And what scripture says is that he would love to give himself to all, that would ask, all who would ask. This morning, if you're just in a place where you're like, hey, I, I, maybe I've been believing those lies, or maybe just realizing, hey, I just want more, but you're at the place where you're definitely like, hey, I, I want more. And here's one thing I've discovered about the Holy Spirit, who is a person, not a thing, not a substance. He's a person, but there's just always more to be had with him. So if you're at a place where you're like, hey, I just, I just want more. I just would ask you to stand and I want to pray for you. And your pursuit of more is not evidence of lack. It's just discovery of the infinite nature of who he is and what he has. Lord, I just thank you for for a hungry, hungry family of believers. And Lord, I thank you that you, it's your desire that we would live full of you. And Lord, I thank you that for some of us, you're expanding our, our capacity so that full is even more. Lord, would you make us sensitive to you and to your work in our lives? where you are, I just want you to begin to ask the Holy Spirit just to come to fill you up. Say, I want more of you. had some apprehension that's been holding you back you may just share that with him say hey this is where, I've, where I'm stuck maybe it's some disappointment
Lord, my prayer is that you would fill us up. It's your pleasure. Ministry team, would you guys come forward? Lord, I ask that today and in the coming days that you would increase our appetite for you, increase our hunger for you. Lord, I thank you that you're inviting us to experience you and encounter you in new ways, in deeper ways. Holy Spirit, come. Rest on us. Thank you.